Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. It's Paul Axton, and I'm here with uh, Jonathan Totty and Matthew Welch. And today we're continuing our conversation about Douglas Campbell. And our plan is to spend about eight podcasts or perhaps more. We were just saying it may take us a few more. But we're going through Campbell's recent book on Pauline dogmatics. And Campbell does in this book what I think uh, people, he's not British, but from New Zealand and He does what people of that extraction are good at, and that is that there's a depth of research and sophistication behind what he's doing. And he does have books that are geared more toward an academic audience. And this book is not that, but nonetheless, it comes with a depth of understanding and a richness of resources that he uses in certainly in his footnotes and the notes surrounding the the work that he's doing. So it's a very accessible book. And so we're going to kind of follow his plan. And today then, Matt's going to lead us in a discussion dealing with what is actually his chapter three in the book, dealing with God's love. Yeah. Well, hey guys, good to good to talk to you guys again. And uh, before we get started, John, could you maybe just do a, a bit of a brief intro and kind of recap what we did last time? Okay. Yeah. Sure. So last time, I, I think some major takeaways would be that we began by saying that we have started in a place in Pauline th- theology that is counter to the stream of a lot of recent Pauline theology. That means that we're not taking the doctrine of justification to be uh, what Pauline theology stands or falls upon. But rather, we're trying to look at a bigger picture, which has to do with St. Paul preaching the gospel in such a way that he is asking us to die to ourselves and to take on resurrected life in Christ. So the way the church has thought about this in other times would, of course, be by the words deification or the Greek word theosis, that what Paul's getting at is resurrected life and the nature of that resurrected life is that we would have access to God's presence even now and then the way that that's worked out. So I think that's pretty important. And the way that that works then in uh, Campbell's book, and I think this is true, is that Jesus or the truth that Jesus is in some way has to be foundational. So it's foundational in the sense that uh, we're not going to use some other measure to say what's true or not true about God. We're going to understand that all truth or other systems of thought might cohere into this ultimate truth that Jesus is revealing God to us, but this has got to be our our beginning place, so to speak. And that then led us to have a conversation about uh, what's the nature of revealed truth, and then how do we embody revealed truth as the people of God. And the way that then gets worked out, I think, in these other conversations that we hope to have is by looking at who God is based on our, this conversation that is around the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's timely being this Easter, uh, Holy Week and then Eastertide. And then also what that means for us and 
actually spelling out what it means to live a part of that resurrected life now. And John, that's that's awesome, man. So that what Campbell wants to do, what you want to do is to make the goodness and love of God primary. So can you expound a little bit on why the notion that God is love is such an important assertion to make when we speak about the doctrine of the resurrection? Yeah. And I think one way of answering this question would be by telling another short story about theology. And this is a story that I tell all the time, and people probably wish I would stop. But I've really bought into the idea that underlies radical orthodoxy and also the work of Charles Taylor, which is to say that somewhere in the late Middle Ages, around the thirteen early 1300s or late 1200s, a shift happened in theology where theologians stopped primarily, and that word's important, but they stopped primarily understanding God as love and being all-wise, such that when they would ask theological questions about reality, why are things the way that they are, they wouldn't have recourse to God's love or God's wisdom, but they began to think in terms of a God who is all-powerful or God's sovereignty. And a part of the reason for that is the world that they lived in. As more the world became more and more fragmented, there were plagues, there were wars, there was upheaval, and this is the, the conditions in Europe that eventually lead to the Protestant Reformation that allow for a splintering of the society that had formerly been built on a synthesis between the world, God, and the church. But with that shift away from seeing God primarily as love and towards seeing God as, say, power, the way that we begin to ask questions about who we are change as well. And so you're going to get new systems of salvation, soteriology, new systems of uh, what the cross is doing, new atonement theologies. Uh, To use Douglas Campbell's words, it becomes much more transactional because it's as if we're dealing with a God who is a sovereign lawgiver and not necessarily a God that has caused things to be the way they are in every moment for our good or a part of an all-wise plan, because God is primarily love, but rather a system that's based on justice in a purely uh, legal sense. So I think that's a huge failing in theology that it does get addressed throughout the tradition. It's not like people just forget how to talk about God and, oh, finally in the 20th century we've, we've arrived again. But the, the emphasis in that conversation certainly changes towards thinking about God's power rather than God's love. And then God becomes more and more conceived as merely the first cause in a long chain of effects. And the way that you know comes to fruition in the Enlightenment and afterwards is with systems that are deist, you know, God is created, but God isn't really present. So we lose the sense of a fourfold causality where God is uh, the reason and the source of being and is the continuous source of that being to a God who really is just a supreme actor within the universe. God becomes a really gargantuan, finite thing rather than a God who is uncreated, infinite love, goodness, truth. Maybe just to focus on sovereignty captures it. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I think we don't have to think very far before we can see the ramifications of that with, uh, you know, to a smaller extent, maybe in Lutheran theology, but definitely in theology of John Calvin. And um, and then even in what we would just consider like out-and-out 
atheistic theologies. I guess deism wouldn't be atheistic, but it's certainly uh, a heretical Christian theology in the sense that you're positing God as a creator, but God is within the system rather than somehow beyond or some other category. Yeah, so to, to, to maybe sum up just a little bit so far of what we're saying, because it's a lot. John, you explained that justification is normally the doctrine that's at the forefront that we would imagine, you know, Christianity stands or falls upon. But then you explained about, you know, how it's actually, you know, resurrection and therefore theosis or deification and how we actually live that union with God out. And that all truth must flow out from that central fact, which is the goodness and the love of God. Um, and then you narrated the story, which I think is important, of how theologians started talking a little bit differently about God in terms of power, first and foremost, rather than love and wisdom, and how that then trickled down and affect all the questions that we're asking in theology about the various doctrines. You know, how God starts being thought of as the first cause, right, in the great chain of effects, or a sort of deism, the contractual theology that flows out from that. And so that's all really important stuff to, to get everybody sort of caught up. And so, Paul, I want to turn to you and ask, you've done a ton with this, and I want to ask what happens to our theology then when we think of God primarily as a sovereign lawgiver, sort of the contractual sense, rather than a God who is primarily thought of, uh, first of all, as, as loving and all-wise. The work that I've done on Romans 7 is, of course, I think, describing the predicament that we're in just by the virtue of being human and that it is the universal predicament that is described in terms of relationship to the law. And so the grand irony here is that what takes place with this focus, I believe, is simply a return to the predicament and a failure to realize that Christ is precisely saved us from or taken us out of that relationship to the law, and the law then is still made primary. So when you talk about sovereignty or power or God is lawgiver, that is not simply an alternative way in Scripture. That's the wrong way. That is an, an understanding that in an Pauline under, you know, mode is to say that's the argument of the book of the key book of Romans is to say that as long as you are relating to God on the basis of law, that in fact you've been deceived about who God is, who you are, and even what the function of the law is. And so the grand irony here, the tragedy, is that we have a Christianity that is marked by the same characteristic failure as humanity is marked outside of Christianity. That is that people imagine themselves in relationship to law. They imagine that there's life in the law, even if in Christianity. Well, Christ works that whole law thing out for us. It's still that we understand who Christ is, that in some way he completes the law or keeps the law for us, and so we're okay what you miss is what John is describing, what Christianity is about, and that is to tell us, well, God is love. And as long as we understand who God is and who Christ are on the basis of this kind of righteousness mode or justification mode of thinking, we're still stuck in what I would characterize 
as, in fact, a failed form of humanity, if you want to think of it in terms of psychoanalysis, that this is pathological. This is a a psychological failure. This is alienation. This is what pits us against ourselves, against other people, and against God. And so it's it's a kind of grand irony that we lose the very message of the New Testament if we don't get this key point. That's excellent. And so what I'm hearing you say is that Christ has revealed to us then that God is not, first of all, lawgiver, which is how we normally think of him, but that he's first of all the good father, that he's firstly the all-wise lover of mankind and hath come to set us free of an understanding that we would, you know, we would have otherwise had he not come to save us. Uh, do I have that right? That God is love, that makes all the difference about everything. There is no cure, by the way, in psychoanalysis. But I think what we're talking about, this realization and a taking up of this realization in Christ is a cure to what is identified in psychoanalysis as the disease. What is the disease? Well, in fact, we have a disease that is the Oedipus complex. or You know, Freud is actually working very much in a Hebraic understanding in which we, we're, we're pitted against our father. Well, the father is understood in terms of the law or, the, or a symbolic order. That is, we mistake God for the symbolic order. Once we say God is love, that changes up our understanding within ourselves. Uh, that is, that there is a, a capacity for reconciliation and not this antagonistic conflict between the two registers of law and of body uh, that you have in Paul. There is the love of other people. We realize that in love, this is who we are. So that, yeah, this it may sound trite until you explain it, but love really is the cure to the human disease. Oh, I don't think it sounds trite at all, but I know what you mean. But uh, to me, the further along the road I go down, the, the more and more you know, you realize how much healing there really is in understanding God as a father, God as the good, uh, the source of the good, you know, the alpha and the omega of the good and of love. And, and John, I want to turn back to you and ask then, so how does the crucifixion of Christ fit in, you know, with this idea of a God who is first of all love? A scripture that Douglas Campbell points to in, in this this conversation is in Romans chapter five, and it's the bit where you know Paul says that it's the cross of Christ that has revealed God's love or proven God's love to us, depending on your translation, based on the fact that God in Christ has died even for His enemies, and I think that's that's a key scripture if we're going to use the book of Romans to sort of think about Pauline theology. There's definitely parallels to that in both Ephesians and Colossians, uh, Galatians, obviously, because it parallels Romans very closely. Uh, So this is a key notion to Paul, but you find it put right up front in Romans chapter 5. And the way I would elaborate on that is actually by having recourse to several other thinkers, Uh, one being Bernard Lonergan, who is a Canadian philosopher and theologian, Robert Doran, who is uh, a student of Lonergan, is an expert. He's a Roman Catholic priest himself and has written a lot. But what's happening in that scripture is 
uh, a reference or there's being made a reference, much like last week when we looked at how Paul distributes the Shema equally between God the Father and Jesus Christ, God the Son. But there's being made a reference to the love that we know demonstrated and through what traditionally have been called the missions of the Trinity, which would be, of course, the incarnation and then the pouring out of the Holy Spirit into the church, and the fact that God is, in his essence, love. Uh, so, of course, when we talk that way, when we were, we're talking about God's essence, we're talking uh, analogically in the sense that we realize that when we say God is all love, we don't really comprehend that. Uh, but what we're trying to say, at least, is that love isn't anything other than God, ultimately. Love isn't a measure of God, but rather God is the definition of love. And yet, it's amazing that we see this proven to us in a mission that is mediated in and through creation, so the cross. Lonergan works that out to come up with this idea that he calls the law of the cross. And the law of the cross is that one should love one's enemies and do good to those that do one evil. It's taken right out of that passage from Romans 5. And then Doran expands on this. He talks about a threefold manner of Jesus' life and then a fourfold way of the law of the cross. And I want to get to that in a, just a moment, so I want you to come back to me. But first, I've got a question for you because I know you recently reread an article by David Bentley Hart where he talks about why we've gotten this wrong. And one of the reasons has to do with Romans chapter 5, that if we do misunderstand how the cross, how the divine missions relate to the essence of God, in particular, a God of love, uh, that it will pervert our theology. So would you like to elaborate on what Hart is saying about Romans 5 and the way it's been interpreted, uh, both rightly and wrongly? Yeah, sure. Just for a little bit of background context for, for the listeners, this might seem like old hat for everybody to think of God, first of all, as love, even towards or for his enemies. What you said there about love is not anything other than God, that God is the definition of love. And so the law of the cross is that one should love even one's enemies. This was an idea that was almost completely foreign to me whenever I was introduced uh, into Christianity and into a particular form of the faith. The love of God, I guess, you know it. People talk about it. People say, well, you know, God is love and God first, you know, love the world so much. You know those verses and things, but at least for me, that's not how I always thought of God. I thought of God as, first of all, a lawgiver. I mean, so this is actually really an important thing, right? And so that if you don't in some way get right with the fact that you've broken the law and that something needs to be done about that, then you're in deep trouble, you know, uh, and by deep trouble, I mean, you're looking at eternal conscious torment, right? Forever and ever. And maybe there's, you know, I'm not saying that there's like nothing at all to that, but what I'm getting at is, is what you guys are explaining about God being first of all love and, and specifically loving towards enemies, God being first of all good and wise. That is, is that he's not, first of all, just exercising his power or his will, but that he's always doing so in the context of his ultimate goodness and love and, uh, and in his wisdom. And so this, you know, of course, as we know, has a long tradition um, in the West, starting with St. Augustine, who we all love and respect. However, Augustine was working with a Latin translation of the Greek. And so a lot of the problems that arise doctrinally in the West, the East didn't have because they had Greek. So there's the, the big one in Romans 5.12 where Augustine, uh, he translates it that, that we all sinned in Adam, which then you know obligated Augustine to a sort of insist even more on an inherited guilt 
right? Which, you know, Hart thinks is kind of like an incoherent logically, right? It's like a squared circle or something like this. You can't inherit the guilt of someone else. You can't be a criminal based upon someone else's actions. But we're just going to get into some of the the background of the translation here real quick to return to what you were saying, John. But And so remember, whenever Augustine makes that move that we're all born in, you know, that we sin in Adam, that, uh, well, that means that even babies who were unbaptized go to hell forever. So there's some real big, you know, bad things that happen from this sort of deformed, and that's the name of the, it's traditio deformis for, uh, at least for me as a non-Latin speaker, but, and then Har goes through and he shows how there's, of course, with Romans being Paul's magnum opus, that there's some big stuff that's happened there with original sin, with his idea of predestination. Uh, I would highly recommend you Googling, you know, Hart's article if you're listening because it's very short but it's also very great and powerful uh, he talks about paul's notion of works as observances not as augustine was reading them as things that you do and then finally i think that what Hart's real point though in the article is though is that if you get what we're talking about wrong okay that theologically you're going to have to make some well, I don't know if you're going to have to make some, but there have been some decisions that have been made in the history of the tradition that have just been deformed, in Hart's words. And that is is that you're going to have to claim, John Calvin claims in Book 3 of the Institutes, that God predestines even the fall. More unfortunately, in his commentary on First John, that love doesn't belong to God's essence, but only to how the elect experience him. And that just goes exactly against what I think that you guys are saying and what Douglas Campbell is saying. Do I have that right? Yeah, well, I mean, what the entire Christian tradition up until that point had said, really. The interesting thing about Hart's articles, of course, Augustine gets this wrong because of a mistranslation, right? But Augustine would have never said that love was not God's essence. That's right. With all that being said, with the whole history of the the different, and and by the way, that's an important, the reason why we're bringing that one up is because that might be an article that you might want to look up to help give you some understanding that this stuff does have a, have a history, you know, in terms of doctrinal, uh, the progression in the way that we think about these different things. Uh, What Matt's getting at and why Romans 5 is so crucial is because the, the move that St. Paul makes there has to do with relating the missions of the Trinity, what we often call, this is of course all technical language, what we often call uh, the economic Trinity to the imminent Trinity. And so this this gets very tricky. This isn't easy theology. We have to be careful with the way we use language or we might say something that's fundamentally either illogical or just incorrect. But it has to do with the fact that we know God uh, most assuredly through the missions of the Son and the Holy Spirit. The way that works in Jesus's life, Doran, Father Doran will talk about this in a threefold manner of Jesus's life. It has to do with the incarnation and the crucifixion. And that's if we were to ask the question, well, why does Jesus have to be crucified anyway? Or why is Jesus crucified? Maybe a better way of asking the question. The first answer we would give is Jesus is crucified because of sin and that he offered his life to overcome sin for humanity. But that's still maybe too abstract. We could think about this a lot more uh, concretely or practically. And that's to say that both for the Romans and for the Jews that are there present at the historical crucifixion of Jesus, we're saying the reasons that they are motivated to kill Jesus can be summed up as sin, which is to say that they're worried about... uh, 
being out of control of the power that they seemingly possess for their lives and for their societies. They've noticed about there's some lack in themselves and they're going to try to grasp for an illicit, they have a desire rather, an illicit desire to grasp for life in and of their own selves. And so what do they do? Well, the Jews are worried that, quite literally, if Jesus is allowed to persist, it's going to make the Romans uneasy enough that the Romans are going to send in generals and they're going to uh, flatten Jerusalem. And that may seem extreme to you, but that's exactly what happens 40 years later when the temple's destroyed, and for similar reasons. Pilate, on the other hand, realizes he needs to do something for a very, very similar reason. If Jesus's possible revolution isn't on his radar and he doesn't feel like that's a threat, he certainly feels like he's going to have a revolution on his hands if he doesn't allow the Jewish leaders to go ahead and have the Romans crucified Jesus. But all this is simply to say that we can think about the Jews in the first century as the most moral people you could encounter. Here are the people who have studied and possess uh, the divine oracles. They have the holy scriptures. And what do they do, the most moral people, when they encounter the Son of God, God in the flesh? Well, they would kill him. Which is ultimately to say that none of us are capable of having a much better response because of sin. And the way sin is defined concretely in that instance is that we would try to grasp for life in and of our own selves. This would be an illicit grasping for life. Of course, the next part of this is that Jesus voluntarily takes up the cross because God's love for humanity. This is put straightforwardly in St. John's Gospel, that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son. So it's out of God's love that he would choose to be incarnate and to be with us. And the incarnation, of course, has much wider-reaching ramifications than merely taking care of our sin problem. It's actually to grow up humanity into the full maturity uh, of the stature of the Son of God, Jesus. We become fully human so that we might have this relationship with God, that we might have union with God and friendship with God. This is what's going on. And that Jesus' resurrection then, and this is the last bit of this threefold manner of Jesus' life, that the resurrection creates a new community in which people are saved from sin in and through the community of the church. So here, thinking of a traditional notion that the church is the ark of salvation, it's quite literally that Jesus has created a community for which, uh, I mean, in which rather, that we will grow up into being fully mature human beings, that we will have friendship with God within this community, and that the only way we institute those practices in our lives is through this community. Well, the way that this works out practically, and this is straight from Doran, he says there's a fourfold way in which the law of the cross has worked out. There are sacralizations to be dropped, sacralizations to be fostered, secularizations to be resisted, and secularizations to be fostered. Now, the word secular there isn't being used in the sense that many of us do today to say a space or a thing that is Uh, somehow completely separate from or exists outside of God. Because uh, as Christians, based on what we've already said thus far, we wouldn't believe that to be possible. But it is to talk about um, our authorities for doing theology and for understanding the coherence of reality. So that most people, and I think rightly so, think that there are bits of creation and the cosmos that are intelligible to us without having recourse to a specific revelation, which this would just be 
you know, notions like we understand that there's gravity, we can work out the mathematics that get us to the moon, we can do the chemistry and the, that provides us common medicines to cure diseases and whatnot. We think that those things are true. Ultimately, we think their truth coheres in the fact that the cosmos is created and sustained by God, but it's not uh, dependent upon having re recourse to specific revelation to see that inherent ordering of the cosmos that is created and directed towards God. That's the way we're using secular. So now to start back with sacralizations to be dropped. This is really key. We can actually talk about the, the two categories of secularization as corresponding to the two categories of sacralization. So sacralizations to be dropped would be, we need to cease to think about some things that are sacred that truly aren't, which is to say we need to cease to do a form of idolatry. The easiest way to think about this, and this appears in the New Testament as well, is when we think about money. So we all can admit that paper money is actually worthless. It only is worth trading with each other for goods because we as a society have agreed that the paper that has a 50 printed on it has greater value than the paper that has a 1 printed on it or a 10 printed on it. It's a, all a lie, but it's a lie that we can make work in such a way that we're able to trade goods and we have an economy that runs based on this lie. The problem, of course, is when we make this truly sacred, when we believe the lie is a matter of first reality, which is to say that we begin to, and this is for most of us, we, we would live our lives in such a way that we think the point of life is to accrue this paper money that is ultimately valueless, and we are willing to make sacrifices of people along the way. We have then made uh, money a, a sacred thing. But we do this with all sorts of ideologies, whether it's our political system or whether it's um, you know, deciding that we ourselves as finite people are owed uh, a certain level of comfort in this life, whatever that may be. That's a sacri those are sacralizations to be dropped. And the way that we do this is by fostering other sacralizations. Ultimately, when we acknowledge that human beings are sacred because we are formed in the image of God and that we have friendship with God as our end collectively, then we begin to realize that our relationships with other people are sacred because Jesus Christ has taken on humanity. And those relationships then, even though in and of themselves would be finite, have a supernatural or an eternal end. The, their end is God. Our relationships with other human beings become eternal. That would be a sacralization that would need to be fostered. And then you see the way this works. So it's instituting the law of the cross in our own lives, this notion that one should love one's enemies and do good to those that do one evil, as a way of understanding the way uh, how we take up our crosses and follow Christ, how we grasp and embody uh, this notion of resurrected life, and how that notion then makes us uh, part of this community, this divine community that has its end as friendship or union with God. The way the secularizations then correspond is, of course, whenever you are fostering a, a sacralization, we're also resisting certain secularizations by doing so. So whenever we foster the idea that our relationships and that other human beings are sacred, God's own beloved. We're also resisting the secularizations that would say humans uh, are really nothing more than a mass of cells. Uh, there's material explanations for what humanity is, and that 
humans can be sacrificed for our own ends. It's all just survival of the fittest in some way. That the end of humanity is really just a natural end. That's death, and there's nothing more that amounts to life in any case. Uh, we are automatically resisting those secularizations when we're fostering certain sacralizations and vice versa. So here's this this um, system that Doran has constructed is one based off of what does it mean for a God who is love and in his essence to have divine missions into time and space as you know Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the church. What does it mean for there to be a created relation between God and humanity such that God has chosen for humanity to exist into eternity uh, to have union and friendship with God? Those are the questions that are being addressed by these ideas, by the law of the cross. And that all ultimately comes back to this notion that it's a God who is love that ultimately defines what it means for us to have resurrected life. Good, yes. I guess I want to add to the point that I was making earlier, trying to make about Hart's article. What you keep saying over and over and what you want to make, rightly so, you know, bring to the forefront is the love of God being absolutely primary. And so whenever Hart's going through and saying, listen, because of a Latin translation or whatever doctrinal commitments or the, the times in which he lived and things like that, what he wants to say is is the notion of an you know inherited guilt or original sin is unjust. It's not good, right? Uh, that unbaptized babies would go to eternal hell or whatever is not reflective of a God of love. The late Augustinian double predestination where God would sort of arbitrarily decide many people are going to go to hell forever for his glory and other people will be saved. That mm -hmm. These aren't doctrines that reflect, first of all, a, a God of love. And, and so that's why I think that Hart can say that there really is a deformed sort of way to talk about God. And what we're trying to, to do here is elucidate different ways where we can think about God and maybe undo some of the things that many of us have learned about all sorts of different ways that we do what John was just describing with secularization. What we want to say over and over again is that the goodness and the love of God is what should inform all of our theology, right? And so Paul, John mentioned that Father Doran's notions about the cross as the love of God that transforms evil into good was developing connection with Gerard, Rene Gerard's work on the, the crucifixion. So how does Rene Gerard's work point to a necessary connection then between the cross and the church as a community of God's people? With Gerard specifically, then, the cross is doing many things, but one of the things that it is taking away is the obstruction, the alienation, and the violence. That is, that Christ is confronting violence. He's being killed by violent people. He is, in Gerard's language, but also the, the language of the Bible, the scapegoat. You know, one man must die that the nation might be saved captures the human mode of culture, the human mode of thought, that is, that violence is focused upon a scapegoat that there is within human thought from Genesis on, from the slaying of Abel by Cain, a kind of duality, a kind of notion that there is a chaotic order and we'll get a grip on this order through violence. And Gerard works this out. We don't need to go through Gerardian theory, but of course it's a theory that covers the notion of 
not only religion, in other words, what he's saying about sacrificial religion is that it's a scapegoating. What he's saying about culture is that it's founded on the same scapegoating mechanism and a kind of originary violence, and that this is then what Christianity is addressing, that there's this violence that is behind human culture, behind human religion, and behind our community-making. The basis upon which we do community culture is that we have a common enemy, or we focus our violence upon a common scapegoat, which means two things, not just a common enemy, but of course the scapegoat becomes that which is sacred. So the violence and the sacred are conjoined. This is the subtle misreading that is disastrous in your description of Romans 5, because I'm afraid that what's happening in the end with an Augustinian taking up, you know, the misreading of the Latin Vulgate actually ends up with reintroducing the scapegoating mechanism as if it's salvific, I think, through uh, the course that goes through Anselm to Calvin, so that what we're given is a Christianity that just repeats the problem of violence, but now God is the origin of the violence. Christ is the scapegoat, and then we are the recipients of that sacred space. That is precisely the problem of sin and evil, but it's reified and deified. What's happening in the church is that there's a new basis for community. Step one, we recognize that we're not going to do community, communion, friendship, family, love, the way that it's normally done, that is, on the basis of who is excluded and upon the way in which we would normally make the sacred. And so there is a refusal, in my understanding, of all forms of violence. And by violence, we don't just mean people bopping each other on the head or simply war, but violence is a mode of thought. Violence is an epistemology that in its very mode of working then is over and against what's taking place in the community of the saints or which should be taking place. And that is that we understand that our bond is one that's given to us by Christ in which life is not given to us on the basis of violence or law or extracted in some way from death itself. But in fact, there is a relinquishing of one mode of life. We might refer to Gerard, but I think that we can spread out, spread that out and just say, well, that's an orientation, an attitude that's there in all forms of human thought. And that is that there is an inherent violence in the very way that we normally function that's undone in Christ. That's what's being addressed in the cross, that it is an orientation to death. Uh, It's not that death per se is the problem, and that's, of course, the mistranslation. Which comes first, sin or death? And, of course, what we recognize, the misreading would make of sin a mystery because it's disconnected from death in the Latin Vulgate. Once we reverse that, as it was in the original Greek, and we recognize that sin is an orientation to death, 
That's what makes it sinful, is that it imagines it can extract life. And this love of life, this grab for life, you know, this is Jesus' statement in all four Gospels, that he who would save his life will lose it. That is a description of the predicament. Ironically, then, the misreading of Romans 5 is going to read to an obscuring of the message, the heart of the message of Christ. But if we flip that around, we understand what's happening in the death of Christ, that he's undoing that orientation to death that's definitive of sin. Death is no longer a means to life, but through Christ we understand that death is, an, is not an absolute, that we have the resurrection of Christ. And thus, when Paul will describe the community of the saints, he will always talk about it in terms of a resurrection community. These are people who no longer are oriented to death, but they share in the life, and life is equivalent with love, which is equivalent with God, that this new community then is founded upon this new orientation to God, to life through Christ. Right. So as, uh, as Hart puts it uh, in a footnote on Romans 5, he says, Just as sin entered into the cosmos and introduced death into all of its members, so the contagion of death spread to the whole of humanity and introduced sin into all of its members. And then he goes on to say, This, as we'll see in Romans and elsewhere, is for Paul the very dynamism of death and sin that is reversed in Christ. By his triumphant righteousness, he introduced eternal life into the cosmos. And so uh, as that life spreads into the whole of humanity, it makes all righteous by heart's account. There's the gospel. Yeah, there's the gospel. Wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. All right. Amen. Uh, so, Paul, do you want to tell everyone where they can go to, uh, to check out more about what they can find at Forging Plowshares and how they can help? We have a Patreon page that you can go to and donate through there. You can go through the website and you can donate through Outreach International. And of course, we always appreciate if you would like us on whatever social media that you might be using and point other people to our podcasts and, and to our webpage. All right, wonderful. Well, thank you guys so much for a great conversation. Hey, it's been, it's been a great conversation. All right, God bless you guys. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.